You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Emma Summerton thinks of pictures as these magical, amazing, and surprising things that allow you to take something that's real and make a whole other world out of it. Now she's joined the likes of Richard Avedon, Stephen Meisel, Sarah Moon, and other iconic names in photography as the latest person to lens the legendary Pirelli calendar. With 50 Vogue covers under her belt, today we ask her why this particular project was always on her bucket list. Discuss her love of art and the experimental self-portrait project that led to her early commissions in the fashion world. And hear why she thinks sensitivity is something we're tapping into rather than fighting against. This is Emma Summerton, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Emma Summerton, photographer, artist, longtime friend, obviously the incredible human behind this year's Pirelli calendar. And in the film, you're heard saying that this was something that you've always wanted to do. And I wanted to start with hearing more about what exactly the Pirelli calendar has always symbolized to you. What it symbolized to me was over the years I had seen so many photographers shoot it whose work I really loved and the work of theirs I'd seen in the Pirelli calendar was highly creative and very much their world, maybe more so than fashion magazines that I'd seen their work in or editorials of theirs that I'd seen. So it felt like a platform where you could really show off, where you could really do your wildest imagination. Can you talk a little bit about the relevance of collaborating with other women on this project or what significance that has in a process like this? Yeah. The Pirelli calendar is a celebration of women and beauty. It was important to me to bring a bigger aspect to the whole project than it just being about beauty, that it was about who these people are, what they do. The film that went along with the project was beautiful just because it gave you such a sense of access to the world that you and Vicky and Amanda Harlick and all of the incredible people that participated had created together. Just these endless, incredible scenes and having the chance to listen to what each of the talent's experiences were being presented through the lens that you imagined them. I really enjoyed what Emily had said about her own appreciation for having the chance to play the artist rather than always just be the muse. I did struggle with the idea of using the word muse. I think... It was around the time that Julia Fox had called herself a muse in some interview and people were like carrying on about it. And I was like, oh God, I don't know about using this word. How will it be perceived? And then I guess going back to studying Greek mythology and history and the use of psychedelics, I remembered reading that in Greek mythology, there were the seven muses who represented the actual artists rather than the women who inspired the artists. So I decided that it was time to reclaim the word and bring it back to its original meaning. And I think at one point, Maybe Ashley says it in the film about being your own muse. And that's exactly what the linchpin of it was. Obviously, these women can be a muse and inspire other women, but they are also their own muse. Well, the Prelly team were said to have been drawn to how your images blend both real and the surreal, but in a modern and exquisite painterly fashion. So I was curious whether or not that description of your work was something that resonated on a personal level. I think I've always enjoyed films or art that shows a bigger imagination of the real world, like science fiction, literature, and magic realism in literature has always inspired me. 
I used to read a lot of books by Tom Robbins and Richard Brodigan. So I've always loved normal things being described in abnormal, surreal, heightened ways. Something that I think you're a beautiful example of is the spaces of both fashion and art photography. And having first published, was it what, in 2005, the self-portrait Polaroid story shot for days? Yeah, Dazed? it was 2005. It was the first fashion shoot as a self-portrait, I guess. Well, that led me to wonder, was the dream from the beginning always to pursue a career in fashion photography or was art the lead? Which one came first? It's so funny. I was writing something exactly about this and no, I, I didn't understand what fashion and photography had to do with each other until I started assisting. So it was like a total accident to stumble across that there was a world where someone like Sarah Moon created these incredible art pictures that were taken for fashion purposes but really could exist outside of a season or a magazine and be definitely called art. So I always loved fashion. I always had a wild imagination of what it should be. I originally wanted to paint, which means your imagination can just go anywhere. My mum used to make clothes out of my drawings. We'd like go and find fabric and I'd be like completely overbearing about how every stitch had to be and the length of it. And so she'd make me these outfits. But then I wanted to be an artist and I went to art school. I did photography as a major and printmaking as a minor. I started to play with reality, the idea of what is real and how it transforms through the camera, how you can transform with light, how an image can be taken from reality but somehow transformed through the camera and different mechanisms. And I always really enjoyed that part of photography. And despite having made that segue into fashion photography and obviously discovered a love for it, you continued the self-portraiture and the artwork and the personal work now? On and off. So I assisted, I did self-portrait work when I first started art school because technically I didn't really know what I was doing and I was too shy to subject another human being to my lack of technical knowledge and using a bed lamp as a light source and all that sort of thing. So I'd dress up and do characters and 80s grandmas, vintage clothes that I'd managed to get hold of and do self-portraits and weird abstract stuff. I was experimenting on myself. And then when I started assisting, I didn't do self-portraits again until 99, 2000, after I'd moved to London. And I was trying to work out how to get into the fashion thing there. And I didn't have any contacts and I didn't have a stylist that I worked with or hair and makeup. And also when I did have those opportunities, I didn't really understand how to work in that way and make it all come together. It's kind of hard if you're not a known stylist to get great clothes. It's hard to get great models if no one knows who you are. So I kind of started doing these Polaroid self-portraits again, a lot of shoes, and I was having a love affair with a photographer and they were like, became visual love letters to him. And that's kind of when the Polaroid self-portrait work started. And then that started my fashion career in London. 
And were those early commissions generally targeted towards the self-portraiture or at that point were people starting to ask you to move into the shooting models and such? No, I said I've been shooting headshots of models for different modeling agencies, basically just trying to find ways to make a living. In London, I was working with Fiona Banner doing model headshots and then I was doing black and white hand printing for someone. So I was kind of didn't have enough hours in the day really, but managed to do this test and sent it into, I sent it to Oyster Magazine in Australia and then they were going to print it and then they decided not to and they lost the prints and I was so pissed off because I had no money and I was like, oh my God, like I've got to go and print it all over again. And then I sent it to Commons and Sense and they decided to run it and I was over the moon. And then Ezra and Suzanne asked me to do something for self-service. I guess the only way the Polaroid led into proper, proper, like a Polaroid's not a proper shoot, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The other thing, Mm -hmm. the other thing was Stefano had seen the day's shoot and it was his first collection and he loved the pictures and he bought prints of the entire story. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming and wanted to meet me. So I went to Paris and was so nervous because he was like... Well, he still is. He's amazing, amazing person, amazing designer. And when I went to meet him, he had all the prints framed and they were in a grid on the wall next to his desk. And I was just sitting there pinching myself, really. And so he booked me to shoot. It was like a lookbook for his next collection. The reason why I also wanted to lean into the self-portrait work is because I think it's so specific in terms of aesthetics and direction in a way that's, I would imagine, not easy to replicate when shooting someone else. But I was curious as to whether or not you found there to be any sort of greater meaning in the way you did those self-portraits as far as how abstract they were and what the sort of outsider could interpret. Yeah, it's a really great question because... I tried for years to emulate it in my fashion work that I would do with models. I tried on Polaroid. I tried on all different cameras. I tried different processes of printing to make it feel like the Polaroid. I tried shooting on a tripod cable release, different kinds of directing. I tried everything. And even now people say, oh, like do the Polaroid thing, but do it. I'm just like, I tried everything. I'm not even going to try and do it again. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes down to the solitude. Being on your own and doing a self-portrait is a completely different conversation in your head than standing there with a team of people and directing someone to interpret what you're feeling, wanting them to do, feel what you're wanting to see. There's a huge gap in saying something and someone hearing it, interpreting it and doing it as opposed to you performing it in your body, in the body that the mind is sitting in and the feeling is sitting in. It's just different. And it's a completely different conversation, even if the intention of you as the photographer is the same. And how would you say that applies to the difference in your work as a fashion photographer versus as an art photographer? I'm assuming those as well are two different languages. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I have an art collector who buys a lot of my fashion pictures and my personal pictures, both for the same purpose. I always thought that the two things would merge together and become the one thing. But I'm realizing the last two years I've done two self-portrait projects and lots of shoots and 
if anything, they're moving further away from each other. I would think that fashion has rules when you're walking onto that set in terms of what the deliverables or expectations are and what variables are coming into play that inform your process versus the artwork, which I would imagine is a little bit more of a controlled or personal environment. Yeah, actually, the artwork is more out of control. Oh, really? Yeah, completely. It's kind of like a party. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't sound bad. It's really fun. It's actually quite addictive because also I never have to show anybody. I don't have to have a result. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's expecting a story to be delivered and put through post for a magazine. So there's absolutely no pressure to create something. It's all about trying things and just seeing what happens. And having like an outline, a sketch, a rough idea of what the story is or what the feeling is, and then just seeing what happens. It's kind of great. I'd never end up with what I thought I was going to. I would also imagine that it represents some type of an escape or some other... Like a freedom. Yeah. I mean, fashion as an industry, and I would imagine this isn't just a broad stroking kind of concept. It's uniquely applicable to photography as well, given politics and all the other things you mentioned earlier about stylists and models and all of those types of things that come into play. I would think that there are moments where you're craving that other option of having that creative freedom that you're explaining as a party and that it ultimately becomes almost like a different way of shifting your power dynamic as far as your relationship to fashion, because you're not really falling prey to any trappings or at the mercy of some external system. It's really all you. Yeah. You can get in a mood and not feel like doing it as well. I like both, but for completely different reasons. And for completely different reasons for why I'm doing them. Mm -hmm. And then I love them both for the same reason because I love photos and I just think they're like magical, amazing, surprising things where you can take something that's real and make a whole other world out of it. You have said in the past when we were talking about some of the restrictions that we all endured that those types of limitations can actually spark creativity. And it's like a reminder that necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And that sometimes having like little ground rules and rules to work in can help you get through to the other side. Mm -hmm. I guess it's about discipline, but then knowing when to let yourself off the hook a little bit and try different things. Because I think sometimes with the fashion photography, like when you're on a time limit and you're working with a team, you have to be decisive and make decisions and you've got a number of shots you have to get done in a certain amount of time. So you have to be more decisive and less experimental sometimes. I guess it's all just a feeling, isn't it? You just like trust yourself to have the right instincts. Trust yourself that you know enough technically and about what you like to make the right decisions fast or slow or however you have to, but know that you can experiment with the realms of freedom (laughs) Know when you have to rein it in. Know when you've got a certain amount of time because the sun's going down, what you need to do. And Has that process for you ever been muddied by the anticipation or analysis paralysis of other people's expectations or ultimate perceptions of your work once it comes out? Do you ever find yourself getting heady when you're in that process? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But then you have to decide to not become paralyzed that. So you have to always just come back to trust and having fun with the moment. 
And also I think what happens sometimes if you do start to get freaked out or bogged down, you lose the energy of the person that you're taking the picture of and the team that you're working with. And it's so important to keep things moving in the right way. And yeah, sometimes it's hard and you're just like, ah, but. Well, I mean, everybody has imposter syndrome and everybody goes through their own versions of what that's like. But the reason why I wanted to ask you is because I think it's an assumption made by so many people who are aspiring to break into this industry and achieve the success that you've enjoyed. They kind of make the assumption that people who have made it lose that type of getting heady or any of that imposter syndrome. And then they feel even worse about themselves because they're assuming that it's only happening to them or it's only a part of their creative process or whatever it might be. And I think it's incredibly helpful to find out that it's part of the journey. And sure, you get better at navigating it over time, but it's not necessarily something that ever completely goes away. You just have to get better at accepting that it's part of being a human being. I think everyone must feel it. And some people just hide it better than others. For sure, I feel that. I come from the suburbs of Australia which is great and has been like a huge inspiration for me and for my work and the sort of woman that I want to see in my pictures and for fashion as well, because we would really play with fashion as teenagers because it was something you could reinvent yourself with, even if it was just for a night. But yeah, I have moments where I think, oh God, you know, I'm not good enough. What am I doing here? Or feel judged or whatever. But usually it's me judging myself than anybody else. And actually, if someone else is judging me, like, boo on them. Like, (laughs) (laughs) clean up your own backyard before you come around telling me that my garden needs pruning. Creative people in general are oftentimes more sensitive anyways, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and I think it's important to be sensitive. It informs the work. Yeah, absolutely. It depends on what your work is like. For me, it's important to be sensitive. And actually, I I want everyone to be having a good time and feel happy. And I want the person I'm shooting to feel cared for and part of the collaboration and not like an object. There's something magical about what we can create. And I think that happens in photography and film and music. We're emotional creatures. And I think it's important to tap into that world to bring it into existence through a picture or a play or music. And how often when you are shooting people rather than still life or self-portraiture, do you find yourself having to be flexible in the process and maybe deviate from the initial idea that you had gone onto the set to capture? It somehow changes or takes different shape along the way due to whatever reason. Oh, a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it. I think preparation is super important, but having your hand open to the sky as well and not holding too tight onto the outcome is also part of the magic because things will happen that are out of your control or things that will happen that are better than what you thought you were going to get or how it was going to look. Sometimes a light misfires and it looks better than the way that you'd lit it. Great. Let's leave that light off because maybe we just overlit everything and the universe or whatever, electricity (laughs) or someone unplugged the light. I don't know. (laughs) Something's telling us that it's better the other way. But I think being open to those things 
is important and it also gives you peace of mind. It's like you can be going to shoot on location and hope that it's overcast and it's bright and sunny or it's pouring rain. What are you going to do? There's so much that's out of your control. You can be in control of a lot, but everything could change. So being technically skilled to know how to deal with that and how to change your lighting, change what you had planned is so important because otherwise you're just going to always be fighting against what is thrown your way sometimes. And I think in order to keep moving in the right direction, you need to be open to that. And it's definitely more fun if you can be. Not freak out, put your thinking cap on. Think of all the pictures you've taken before, all the things that have gone wrong before and how they turned out better for you, even though they seem like a disaster at the time. And get on with it. (laughs) Get on with it. Don't be a big baby. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like you're giving absolutely golden advice to people coming up in this business today. And I would love to hone in on what type of advice you might give someone who loves both their personal work that's perhaps more in the art space, but doesn't want to forego their passion for fashion photography and how to kind of reconcile that. Because forget imposter syndrome. I think there's this idea that we all have of having to be puritanical about one thing or another. And when people find themselves interested in a multitude of things or those particular examples, they feel a little bit dissuaded or less credible in either of them. So as someone who successfully straddled those worlds throughout the span of your career, what advice do you have for those wanting to be able to play in both boxes? I think it's a completely personal thing. I think everyone has to slay their own dragons and decide how hard or gentle they're going to be on themselves about that sort of thing. Have you started to think about things through the lens of social media channels when you're shooting? Or do you still always view... Oh, is your cat attacking you? Yes, Winston's attacking my earphone cord and chewing on it. No, I have not. And I shall not. No. I refuse. I refuse. I refuse. No, because, God, there's nothing more fun than doing huge big prints of pictures and having someone put them on a wall or making a book, you know, and playing with that medium. My computer broke last week and I had to reinstall everything and it was just like, oh, imagine if all this stuff just only exists as like numbers and things and Imagine if that's all it was, it just wouldn't feel so valuable. So would I buy an NFT? No, I wouldn't know what to do with it. (laughs) Would you? I wouldn't go so far as to say I wouldn't know what to do with it. I don't have that answer today, but I can't commit to never purchasing one. I feel like it's this inevitable future we all face. And I also grew up on the internet and chat rooms as a closeted gay boy in a suburb. So I kind of feel like (laughs) the idea of being a digital character is no stranger to me. (laughs) (laughs) he loves his avatar sometimes it's better than the real thing you can design it yourself that's true i mean i didn't mind my 50th birthday party i have to say i'm i'm trying to follow the the segue on the moon oh yes i mean that was definitely you see you were ahead of web three you you already had it all figured out throwing parties on the moon years ago well years ago not very long ago yeah but yes yes not years (laughs) a year and a half i caught caught myself there (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I guess yeah. almost two years. Almost two years. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was definitely a precursor to what we're now all in front of. So look at you. Maybe maybe you're bound for NFT purchasing in no time. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'll make one. I mean, why the hell not? I could honestly go on for hours as we tend to do. I'm so glad that we got the chance to do this and thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. And sharing everything that you've shared. Thank you, darling. All right. Lots of love. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. Special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, Joseph Topmiller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Saw for the original theme music, and Aaron Marr for visual design. Subscribe now for a new episode each week, and for additional content, find us on social or at whatscontemporary.com. 